story that we've been preaching through, we've been learning together and growing together in our understanding of the large story that God is telling and how, how there's all these micro stories within it and how they're all kind of telling the same story over and over in their own way about who God is and, and his love for us and then how we're going to fit into his story as well right now. And to, this morning I'm going to talk to you about the book of Esther. Uh, and I want to begin by telling you, showing you a quote from a buddy of mine, J.R. Briggs. He's another pastor uh, on the other side of the country. And um, he asked this question a few years ago. Um, hopefully it'll pop up here on the TV in a minute, but if not, we'll just, uh, for those of you online, you just have to listen and not watch. I know some of you mute it. Don't mute it. Um, why, the, the quote was this, why did God bring together this particular group of people? Why did God bring together this particular group of people in this particular place at this particular time? That's a good question. Why did God bring together this particular group of people in this particular place at this particular time? That's something for us to wrestle with as we're going to look through the story as we're gathered here this morning to talk about Esther. I want you to keep that question in your back pocket till the end, okay? Why are we all gathered here, this particular people in this particular place in this particular time? And uh, so what I want to address first today is that the problem with, there, there are some problems with, you know, when you do a curriculum like this as a whole church. Nothing is going to, like, be perfect. Um, but the problem is that with, with, with these chunks of stories, we're, we're going to, we kind of end up losing the, uh, the narrative arc overall, like the larger, bigger story, because we're, we're just about halfway through this series. We're actually over halfway through this series of talks. And so I think it might be really beneficial for all of us at this point to kind of sum up the narrative arc that we've covered from the beginning of these talks until now, uh, like in just a few sentences. If we're going to cover 19 chapters in just a few sentences, that's what I'm going to try to do for you right now. And the first part of the summary would be that in all the stories we've covered so far, it seems that God is always looking for human partners. And we've asked that question before, like, why? Why in the world? Like, if you wanted to put himself on display and give messages to his people, he could do it in any way, shape, or form he wanted. But why does he want to partner with people to do that? Uh, that's, that's part of the big question. And he's always looking for these people that he wants to partner with to help him do something. And that something is he wants us to put the world back together. He's trying to put the world back together. And he focuses his attention in this, in this larger story on this group of people, the Jewish people, for this redemptive project. That's the first part of the summary. The second part of the second observation is that this group of people that he wants to partner with, they struggle with this. They struggle with, what he, to, with partnering with him to put the world back together. They get off track, right? Like, it's like they get way off track sometimes. They, they, in fact, they end up doing things exactly the opposite of what he wants them to, to do sometimes. But I want to draw your attention to one thing here. The problem, the other deeper problem here is that when we read these stories, we always say, they. They got off track. They did this. They did that. And I actually hate the word they for many reasons. Uh, it's often used as a divisive word. Like, instead of me, they did that, right? We do this from a really young age. Like, that group of kids did that, mom, right? My, he did that. She did that. They did that right? 
I don't like it also because from a Jewish perspective, when they're talking about any story today, they're going through the book of Esther, they're going through, they're talking about Jonah, they're talking about Moses. They don't say they did that. They say we did that because it's our story. And that's the point. Like I wanted to give you that reminder that this is our story. It's not they did it a long time ago. It's that we do it. We did it. It's our history. It's our story. It's our struggle. We struggle, right? Do we not struggle partnering with God to put the world back together? Sometimes we're like, man, when I think about it that way, I didn't even get to, back, get to the part of partnering with him. I need to fix myself. I need to do something with him to, so that I can be able to do that or something like that, right? But there's this dangerous something that happens when we start to say they. And that's the deal in this, theory, in this series, if you haven't picked up on it yet. It's not they. I would say it this way. It's not they. It's me. It's my story. It's not my story. It's our story. In other words, you could say it this way. We stood at Mount Sinai. That's what the Jewish people would do in their own families. They would say, we stood at Mount Sinai. We accepted the covenant of God. God put us in this land and called us to put the world back together, right? You guys tracking with me? Okay. So when you read the Bible, it's not God put them in the center of the world, because he did. He put them at the crossroads of the known world at the time where all these cultures were converging for trade routes and all that kind of stuff. It's God put us at the center of the world and he's still putting us at the center of the world all the time because why when we live where we live now in this particular time in this particular place everywhere no matter where you were are if you're if you're online and live in a different city it doesn't matter and you're watching this where you are the world has come to you the world has come to you every tribe and nation is everywhere in every place in the world these days, right? And so it's God has put us in the center of the world, and we struggle to remember what God's up to. We struggle to put the world back together because why do we struggle? Because we start to build our own empires. We start to think it's my stuff, our stuff, that kind of thing, and we build our own protection and our own little bubbles and our own little uh, boundaries, our own little comfort zones and our own security and our own safety. Me, mine, right? Me and mine. And God has endless patience with us. And he has endless patience with us until we start trampling others. And then he has no patience. Okay? There are other children in this world that he loves just as much as he loves you. And when you start taking advantage of the oppressed or those on the margins and you start trampling on them and you start getting higher and higher and higher and building your own name and building your own empire, it's then that God says, you've actually become the anti-story to the story I'm trying to tell. We talked about this last week, that it's not so much when you get off, when the people of God get off track that he wants to punish them, uh, you know, for disobedience and that they have to pay for what they've done. He basically says, I need to get you back on track, right? And the way I'm going to have to do that is I'm going to have to take you out of your comfort zone. You're going to get conquered and you're going to be taken off to Babylon. 
because you're telling the wrong story, not because you need to pay for what you've done, but because you're telling the wrong story about me. And when you tell the wrong story about me, the world gets the wrong idea about who I am. So I need to correct you. It's not, oh, you need to pay. That's a pound of flesh for what you did. It's not that. So God says you've become the anti-story when you start You've, you've worn his patience too thin when you start taking advantage of and trampling on others. So God says, you're not doing the exact opposite thing that I've called you to do. You're not representing to me and you're representing me well. And, you, and our story is that we're supposed to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, putting God on display. And so he carts not them. Who does he cart? Us. He carts us off to captivity where we sit for three or four generations and are reminded of what God is up to in the world. As a reminder, like, look, you need to pay attention. Pay attention to what, what I'm up to in this world and, and join me back in it. So somewhere in the midst of that, we start. So you notice what I'm doing here. Not they start. We start to learn our lesson. And God says, all right, let's get you back home and get about the business that we're supposed to be doing and that's where we left off last week. Now, what happens when we tell that part of the story as we say they were in captivity in Babylon, and then the Persians came and took, conquered and took over the Babylonian Empire, and Cyrus issues a decree and the Israelites get to go back home. And in our mind, we think that everyone that got to go back home, it's just like this big, happy party of people uh, that are going to go home all together and rebuild. And actually, that's not the way it happened. In fact, very few of them went back home. Very few of them went back home. When we read Ezra and Nehemiah, we think it's a large group of people, but in actuality, it's a very uh, low number of people that went back home. And a larger number of people stay in Persia. They stay in Babylon because they think God's up to something there too, Right? And uh, lots of people stay there. And they do it for a number of reasons. But I think, I think practically speaking, if you were part of that group, part of that group, and God says, we're going to go back, and what are we going to do? We're going to work hard. We're going to rebuild this wall. First of all, we've got to travel hundreds of miles to get there. And then when I get there, there's no place for me to live, so I've got to build it or find a place to, for shelter. And then I've got to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem? Makes sense that a lot of people stayed in Persia, right? <laughs> Like, because do we like hard work? No. We like to be comfy. We like our Netflix and our couch, our recliner, you know. Um, and it's hard for some of these people to remember the glory days of what the temple looked like. So when Ezra and Nehemiah go back, it's not for the faint of heart. It's not for the faint of heart. And Persia is a lot different than Babylon. We talked about this last week. We said that Babylon, when they came in, they, their, their modus operandi was, we're going to crush you. Persia was like, we just want you to enjoy being part of our culture. You're just part of the bigger mosaic here, and you get to do things the way you, that you like. And it's not just that these Jews were staying in Persia, that they're just uh, compromising or being lazy. There are many, many Jews who stay because, like I said, they believe that they can partner with God, that God will use them if they stay there, if they remain faithful to him. And we said that last week, this is the time when synagogues were set up and where the schools were set up for rabbis to teach kids the text of the Old Testament scriptures so that they wouldn't forget because they kept forgetting. And every time they forgot, they ended up in scenarios like the one they were in, carted off into slavery. Okay? So, they believe they can be used in Persia, and I would tend to agree with that. 
There were a lot of Jews who were like, listen, what is so holy about that singular piece of dirt back there in Jerusalem? Like, if God is for everyone, then we've got a job to do here. And I think God is doing something in Persia, is what some of them said. And I would agree with that. I would agree with that sentiment. So God, and here's the thing, God never told them that they had to go back. He never told them, if you read the story, that they had to go back. God told them that they could go back. So there are a whole bunch of them who stay in Persia, them. There's a whole bunch of us that stay in Persia. And I'm pressing that point because there's a whole group of people there that love God with their whole heart and their, their whole soul and all their might in Persia. And that's important because that is where today's story begins in Esther. The book of Esther takes place a century and a half later after, after that first group went back to rebuild the wall. A century and a half later, the story of Esther happens in Persia, not in Jerusalem, over in Babylon, Persia. It takes place that much longer down the road. And it's about this group of Jews still living there. Now, in this story, we've got this Persian king named Xerxes. Say Xerxes. Yeah, I, yeah, Xerxes. I wish it was just Xerxes and that they used like, names like that in Wordle because that would have two X's in it and two E's and you would be like confounded forever, right? Uh, so Xerxes is like, that's a real big deal, by the way. If you want to like compare stats, you will lose if you uh, play against my nine-year-old daughter. Every time I'm like, what? She walks up and she's like, oh, it's that. I'm like, what is going on? So um, He's throwing this party, and it's a typical uh, party for a king to throw. He is invited, he's invited all these other kings, all the other important people, all the generals. He's got the, this is the equivalent of having all your bros over to watch the game with a few brews. This is what's going on, okay? So he's got all these guys here, and they're all posturing and stuff. And they're like, you know, and they probably had a drink or two or 10 or 20 or whatever. And he gets this idea that he wants to have his wife Vashti come out and dance before all these men. Awkward, right? Um, but it's more than that. He wants, him to, she, he wants her to do that with nothing on but her crown. Yeah. To which Vashti says, uh, no, right? To which all the king's boys are going, yo, 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 you going to let her talk to you like that? Like, if she tells you no and you let her get away with it, all of our wives are going to be thinking they can tell us no. What kind of a world would it be, guys, if wives could tell their husbands no? Oh, my goodness. Imagine that. <laughs> I hope you're getting my sarcasm here. So, and so they say, you need to make an example of her. And now he doesn't kill her or anything. He makes her leave and he banishes her from the throne. And he basically says, I don't have, the kingdom doesn't have a queen anymore. And, and then guess what happens? He gets lonely, obviously. And so his officials get this idea. We're going to hold, it's not just go find a wife. Like he doesn't have a dating app, right? So this is his version of a dating app except he's the only guy on the app, right? We're going to hold a contest and go find all the beautiful virgins in the land, and we're going to bring them to your harem for a year and give them a year's worth of beauty treatments. Beauty treatments. 
And again, the English loses something here that's in the Hebrew. Beauty treatments, yes, like you know, the makeup and all of that and the spa and everything like that. But this is a year's worth of training in other arts, okay? This is like, this is, this, it's like a contest. Bring them all so there could be a contest and whittle it down to who's going to be the winner. It's American Idol meets Bachelor meets Squid Game. Okay, it's a really bad idea. It's a really horrible television show. But this is his plan. And so somewhere along the way, this young Jewish girl gets brought into the harem and she hides her Jewish identity. And her name is Hadassah. Say Hadassah. Hadassah. Her Babylonian name is Ishtar. But we say Esther. You were right. <laughs> You're like, dang it. <laughs> uh, which if you look up Ishtar, it's the Babylonian goddess of love and fertility. That's the name for that. Which, you know, maybe some of you know that stuff, ring some bells. So she spends a year with the king's harem and eventually she gets her night with the king. How many of you have heard of this movie, One Night with the King? I recommend you go watch it. It's for free on YouTube, I think. So... Uh, and it's the story of Esther, okay? And eventually she gets, and it's got like A-list actors in it, like top-of-the-line actors in it, okay? Eventually she gets her night with the king, and here's what happens on that night. He may say after his night with you, away with you. And he may say, mm, come back next week. Or he may say, you're my queen. You're my queen. And he has his night with Esther, and he says, you are the queen. You are it. You are the one. But there's also this backstory going on between Esther's uncle, who is a good, righteous, Torah-observing Jew, and his name is Mordecai. Say Mordecai. You should practice saying these names. This is our story. Mordecai. And the king's right-hand man, whose name is Haman. Say Haman. Haman is an Agagite, is what the text tells us, but according, if you look that up, it means that he is actually an Amalekite. He is from a Canaanite tribe. That's his ancestry. Do the Canaanites like the Israelites? The answer is no. Everywhere Haman goes, people bow down to him, except for one man named Mordecai. And this makes Haman furious, just makes him furious. And he sets out to destroy Mordecai, and not just Mordecai, all of his people, because that's how you do back then. He's like, I'm going to kill all your people too, the Jews. And he convinces the king to write an edict that on such and such and such a date, you know, all the Jews are going to be exterminated. But Mordecai finds out and he says to Esther, you have got to help us. You are the queen now. Please help us. Talk to the, talk to the king and convince him to save all of our people. And Esther's response is, I, just, I can't just walk into the king I can't just walk in there, knock on the door, and be like, hey, don't kill my people. You know, you don't just show up and talk to the king. Even though I'm his wife, I have to be summoned. And if he's in a bad mood or if he's busy or if he doesn't want to see you, then, and you show up and, like, say, I'm going to talk to you now without asking, that could be the end of you. You could be dead, right? You don't interrupt. And we already know how Xerxes feels about queens and wives who don't seem to know what his boundaries are, Right? He's just like, yeah, you're done with Vashti. 
This is what it says. Mordecai says this to Esther in Esther 4, verses 12 through 14. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. And if you've heard that phrase before, this is the origination of that phrase. This is where it comes from, for such a time as this. This is the famous line from the book of Esther, for such a time as this. And Esther says, all right, I want the Jews to pray and fast, and I'll go talk to the king. And to make a long story short, she throws her own banquet. Haman's plot is shown to, what, to be what it is. And then he ends up being executed, and the Jews are able to defend, them, defend themselves, and they are all saved. And this is the story of celebration that happens every year for Jewish people called Purim. It actually is coming up in March. It, it goes from sundown on March 6th and continues to March 7th. And Purim is a parte. This is typically where Jewish parents will say, kids, do whatever you want. Things we would never allow you to do. And there's no repercussions. Do it. We don't care. Seriously, this is Purim. And they're celebrating their release. Their, they, they had a death sentence, okay? So, this might be a surprise to some of you. There is the inspired, God-breathed story of Esther in the Bible, but in Jewish tradition, there are two ways to read and interpret it, all right? Which should give us pause for, like, yeah, can we have two different interpretations in the room and not, like, be all mad at each other about stuff? Can we learn to get along and focus on what the central tenets of Christianity are and put other opinions aside? Here are two ways to read and interpret it, and I'm going to tell you both because I think there are some of you in this room who need to hear story A, and there's probably some of you in here who need to hear story B. And it's kind of the same interplay that we find all throughout the scriptures, you read something in the scriptures and like you can read it this way and, and, and come to this conclusion and this is what I need to do in response with my life and then you can read it this way and there's, this is what I need to do in response to what I've just learned and the epiphanies that we come to when we read through the very words of God. You remember the story of the prodigal son? Everybody, how many of you know the story of the prodigal son? Jesus tells this, this uh, parable there's one son who is the prodigal, right? The younger son, he's the, he's the thinner. He's the sinner. Remember that clip I showed you guys of really bad 1970s B movie where Jesus is walking with everybody's white and blonde haired and he walks in and he's like, listen up, I'm Jesus. Look at me, all you sinners. That's just a really bad place to start in, your, in our image of who Jesus is, right? But in this story, you have the prodigal, who's the sinner, and then you have the other son, who's the older brother. Both, both the younger son and the older son are separated from the father. One is separated from the father by his sin and rebellion, and the other is separated from the father because of his self-righteousness. And in the parable of the prodigal son, Jesus says to the crowd, basically, 
Which one are you? Because you can read the story one way and say, I'm that guy. You read the story that way, one way and you can say, I'm that guy or girl. We actually find the same dynamic in the book of Esther. One way to read the book of Esther is story A. And if you have any kind of familiarity with the historical background of the book of Esther, then you probably heard the story like this, which is story A. Esther becomes queen through some questionable compromises in her morality and ethical positions, which would be a nice way to say it. (laughs) She spent a year in the harem, received her beauty treatments, had her one night with the king, and won his favor. That's to put it in the Hebrew, won his favor. And you read that, uh, and you say, we read that, and we go, yeah, well, it's obvious what's going on here, how she becomes queen. And so she becomes queen through some questionable means, but she's in the right place at the right time where God needs her to do his work, and she saves her people. And yes, there's a whole case to be made here. There is a massive case to be made here that in that culture and in that time and in that place, this poor young woman named Esther basically had no choice and was treated like an object. No doubt. Never happens today, does it? Right. That, there's that case to be made, and it, it's a really solid one. But there's a great lesson still in, in story A, and this is really, really important to hear Remember when we talked about Rahab? Rahab was a prostitute. And the point we said in that story was that God partners with immoral people in his kingdom all the time. One of the reasons why is because there are no not immoral people. (laughs) Right? It doesn't matter where you came from. It matters where you decide to go from here. God made you and he knows you better than anyone. He knows your full potential, even if you haven't realized it yet. And the book of Esther is showing us the same thing. And I don't know what you brought through the doors this morning, today. I don't know, I don't, I don't know what your week was like. I don't know what you were doing last night. (laughs) I don't know what kind of a mother or a father you are or what kind of a husband or wife you are or what kind of friend you are. I I don't know any of that. And I don't know what you brought through the doors with you. All I know is that it does not matter because today God is saying to you and every one of us, I'm looking for partners. I'm looking for partners for such a time as this. And I'm not concerned about your yesterdays. I'm concerned about your right nows because your right nows are going to make a difference for your tomorrows. That's really important, you guys, because in ministry, I hear this all the time. I hear this all the time in ministry. And, and I have said this too. The thinking that we have is when someone says something like that, like what I just said to you is like, yeah, you, but you don't, I agree with that, right? I agree with that, but you're not talking to me. You're talking to someone else, not me, because you don't know where I've been. You don't know what I've done, and I'm not qualified. 
There used to be this sign in churches, if you've been in church for a minute, <laughs> um, that you could, it, it used to be on signs, and pastors used to say it all the time. And it's kind of cliche, but it's also actually quite true. God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called, which is all of us. He doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. Because his strength is made perfect in what? Your weakness. So it would actually be pretty bad kingdom economics to only use the qualified. Like, if we only used, like, the smartest and the really, really good-looking, like the valedictorians or the really popular people, because when those people succeed, well, we're like, yeah, of course they do, right? Of course they do. They. <laughs> Who God likes to partner with is morally bankrupt people. Just read the story. All over the place. The invitation of that story is God loves to partner, like story A here is that God loves to partner with those who know that they are undeserving, but they step into that place and they're willing to let God team up with them. They, they are willing to team up with God and they don't let their past get in the way of their tomorrow. And if that's you, I'm not talking to someone else. I'm talking to you. And you say, well, you don't know about my addiction. You don't know about all these things in my life. Well, all I know about is today. Today, God needs you for such a time as this. And God is willing to work through whatever junk you have, whatever junk you bring to the table, because he, he wants you. He wants to partner with you. It doesn't matter about you yesterday. So that's story A. Then there's the whole group of you that need to hear story B. Story B uh, there's this thing called the Babylonian Talmud. It is the Jewish commentary on all the scriptures. And they, they, it's called the Babylonian Talmud because they wrote it. They wrote all this oral stuff that they were arguing about, about the scriptures down. They wrote it down when they were in captivity in Babylon. So it's just called a Talmud, right? And everything we just talked about in story A, if you read the Babylonian Talmud, they said, if you read it like that, you're reading it wrong. You're reading it wrong. This is the second, the second take, right? Because the Babylonian Talmud, when you go back and read the actual story of Esther, it actually doesn't say that she does anything wrong. It doesn't ever say that she does anything wrong, which is correct. Go back and check it. There's all these hints in the text that show us that, in fact, she is not morally bankrupt. And, in fact, she's walking this path of righteousness to the best of her ability. And in chapter 2, there's this stuff with how Mordecai is in the courtyard. Every day he's in the courtyard going back and forth, back and forth to visit her and see how she's doing. And the Babylonian Talmud says, it's not just to visit her and say, hey, are you okay? It's because every morning Mordecai, her uncle, is sitting down with her and teaching her the text. Remember, this is the period of time where the synagogues were set up. And he is basically her daughter, even though she's his, her niece, his niece. And he's taking his responsibility as a, as a parental figure seriously by teaching her the text so that she won't forget. That's what he's doing. 
He's encouraging her to stay strong in the path of righteousness. And she spends this year in the harem. She has her one night with the king, and she impresses him. She doesn't impress him with her beauty treatments. The text says she impresses him with stories of her people from the text. She tells him stories of her people. And this king is so impressed by this woman who won't come in and and impress him with her sexuality, but will instead tell him stories. And he says, you are my queen because you got something different. And the reason this story is so captivating, what the Talmud is trying to teach us is that there was this group of Jews who walked the path of God every day, smack dab in the middle of compromising situations, and they did the things that God called them to do. And even though they couldn't see God anywhere they looked, they could not see God anywhere they looked. That's the story of the Babylonian captivity. That's the story of the one page between your Old and New Testaments, the one page in, your, in, in the Bible when you open it up, the 400-year period where they're like, where are you, God? We don't see you anywhere. Did you know the book of Esther does not mention God one time? Not at all. And that's the author's way of saying that's what life was like when we were in captivity in Babylon. We looked around and God wasn't there. You couldn't find God anywhere, but still they walked the path. And every day they studied the scriptures and every day they walked the path of righteousness every day. Why? Because they... It's not because they saw any benefit from it, because a whole generation lived and died without seeing anything from God. No fruit. But they continued to walk it. And guess what? They passed it on to their kids. And their kids walked it. And they walked it. And they kept walking it. And they walked it every day. And they passed on the text. Every day they did what they were supposed to do. The good ways, the ancient paths. Ask your elders and they will tell you what they are. Ask your fathers and they will teach you. Every day they walked And they lived, and then they died, and they didn't see any fruit from their labor, but they passed it on to their kids, and they kept being faithful, and they walked, and they lived it. And one of those kids ended up being, eventually, a guy named Mordecai. And every day, he walked it, and he walked the path of righteousness. And one day, Mordecai began to teach his niece, who was an orphan. Her name was Hadassah. And he taught her, and he taught her the way. Which I love saying, by the way. Mandalorian. He's just tapping into this. This is the way. And they hadn't seen any fruit for three generations. And one day, such a time as this showed up. One day, such a time as this showed up. And she was ready. She was ready. Because every day they walked the path. Say these words after me. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the way of sinners or stand in the presence of scoffers or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. On it, he hagas day and night. 
He will be like a tree planted by streams of living water. Say it. On it, he hagaz. Remember that? We translate it as delights. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Hagaz, the word, it's, it's delight. It's the word used of a lion on top of its prey after a kill. Hagah, the word of the Lord. Tear into it day and night. And we talked about, this ends by saying, if we do this, this is from Psalm 1, by the way. Psalm chapter 1. We talked about what that tree planted by streams of living water looks like a few weeks back. And we talked about how it's an acacia tree. Let me put that picture up there. It's an acacia tree. Let's leave that up for a little while. It literally, it does nothing. It sits in a wash, in a ravine, in the desert for up to 10 years, waiting for water, doing nothing. But when the rains come, the stream bed fills up and the tree springs to life. You talk about waiting like Esther did, Mordecai did, for generations without understanding or seeing where God is. It's just dry. When it talks about streams in the desert, it's not talking like in our imagination, like an idyllic European countryside with the rolling green meadows and the massive oak tree next to, you know, butterflies and flowers in the field. It's talking about this. A very real reality that most of us go through in our lives with dry and parched seasons. But when the rains come, the stream bed fills up and the tree springs to life. They look dead sometimes, but they're not. The man who hagas on the text is like an acacia tree. And the English says springs of water. But the Hebrew text actually says, rushing torrents of water. That's what it says in Hebrew. Because that's what a flash flood looks like when it comes. How many of you know about flash floods? Yeah, I grew up in Arizona. There are flash floods. Monsoon season comes in August. They don't call them monsoons anymore, something else. But... um, After 10 years, it springs to life as the most useful tree in the desert, providing shade. And that's the story, that's story B of Esther. Some of you have been walking the path for decades. Some of you are the elder brother. And your temptation is to say, Father, I have walked all my life following my parents, and you've not given me what I want. Your invitation in story B is to hear God say, you are my son, you are my daughter. Everything I have is yours. Now walk the path. Walk the path. Not because you feel like there's a flood of the Holy Spirit washing over you every time you read the Bible or come to church. Not because you get warmer fuzzies. When you sing worship songs, not, it's not like that. You walk and you walk and you walk and you teach your children to walk and you teach your friends' children to walk. 
And you walk and you walk and you walk. You, this is the way. Because someday, such a time as this will come. You walk and you walk and you walk and you walk even when you don't feel like walking because some morning down the road, God will come to you and say, hey, it's today. I need you right now. I need you right now for such a time as this. And those moments are all, they're all over the place. They happen all the time. And so I'll return to that question that my friend asked at the beginning. Why has God gathered this particular people in this particular place at this particular time for such a time as this? You can't wait for some epic movie moment to come and go, oh, that's the time. No. For such a time as this. This is why he's gathered you here. It's not a mistake that each and every one of you are in this room right now. I have to trust that. You have to trust that. Amen? For such a time as this.